Hello and welcome back to another episode of Politics on Draft with me, James Tabor. And me, Kartik Sawney. Join us as we go through the political news of the world and try to make sense of everything that's going on. Each week we'll talk about current affairs, political topics and offer some insight, research and opinions along the way. We'll also be bringing on some special guests with interesting stories and their experience of politics. So whether you're a massive politics nerd or someone who simply wants to know more, you're very welcome to join us every Friday from 8am, just in time for your morning commute. So get comfortable, get a drink, and remember, the best politics is always on draft. Hello, Kartik. How are you doing today? I'm good, James. How are you? Yep, I'm not too bad. It's been a, it's been a busy week. It's been, uh, you know, a lot going on, um, but also not much going on at the same time. It's been that weird kind of thing. It was really big at the beginning, and then it uh, kind of dwindled out. Uh bit like uh the government's approach to brexit in 2017 um so <laughs> let's uh let's let's kick off uh and uh i'll ask kartik what are you drinking well i'm not drinking anything at the moment i literally ran home um from the train station i was stuck on a train down to where i live in bromley for about an hour and a half um Basically, the train had broken down. People got frustrated. They jumped off the train and started walking on the tracks. Oh, um, my God. I know, right? It's really dangerous. That's insane, really yeah. I know, right? We don't know why they jumped off, but I don't think it's quite news- newsworthy, other than the fact that it's just another case as to why we should renationalise the railways. Cough, cough, labour. Damn, you segued that in very nice. What are you drinking, James? I am drinking Stella. Bites unfiltered, so it means I'm. Nice. It's like oh, I was about to do the whole like rhetoric of what Stella is, but I'm not going to do that. I'm an unfiltered. We really shouldn't. Whatever yeah. you know, the rhetoric. Um, okay. Uh, so yeah, so very very nice, but um, but don't worry about being um late. And just for for everyone at home, Kartik was very very worried about tonight. And so uh, give him all the love and, and praise and, you know, and now you also know he lives in Bromley, so you can go and find him if you want to. <laughs> well, I, haven't, so, I haven't told him whether in Bromley in East London or Bromley in South London, but there you go. Anyway, <laughs> let's keep on. Let's move on to Boris Johnson. He was in front of the Privileges Committee or the Committee on Privileges. Uh, either way, it sounds pretty different. And James, what was he doing there? So he was giving evidence, but I think you know, before we do this, we need to contextualise it with what happened the day before. So on Tuesday, uh, Boris Johnson submitted a 52-page evidence pamphlet of mm-hmm. why he didn't mislead Parliament. He didn't submit it. His lawyer submitted it. Or I don't is, think he's been going on yeah. for 52 pages whilst being vaguely yeah. coherent. He's not or that smart. At least his lawyers, his team submitted it. Because the next day... Wednesday mm-hmm. for real time yesterday because we're recording on Thursday <laughs> um, he was in front of said privileges committee explain uh, answering lots of questions that committee of course headed up by Harriet Harman and um, yeah uh, I mean I've read through the 52 page document I was asked to do so by my boss and uh Go on, yeah. give, it, give us a summary of what it was like from your perspective. What do you think the excuses were like? And then we can come on to the Privileges Committee. So the excuses were to do with the assur- mainly to do with the assurances 
about these events that he had with um his chief of uh with the chief of staff at uh number 10 which i believe is jack maynard is that his name um something or another jack doyle maynard i think it's oh there's maynard there's, there's maynard is someone else You've got jack doyle who was his um political special advisor um you had james i want to say slate slack something like that um you also had uh simon case of course which was the cabinet secretary all giving him assurances that these events you know didn't happen and they were the assurances he relied on and he defends those assurances in there he says you know they were very good assurances from people who know their stuff who are very you know sort of good civil servants but the simple fact was is they were wrong and he recognizes that they were wrong later and so he flip-flops on a lot of the stuff he says but also it didn't need to be 52 pages long because he actually spends a lot of the time talking about, you know, like every single event. We don't need to know that because we saw the Sugway report, but he decided to do it anyway. Um, and equally, he decided to call into question the legitimacy of the Privileges Committee itself, which, you know, if you're being questioned on the Privileges Committee and you want a favourable outcome, I wouldn't call into question the legitimacy of said committee. Uh, Kartik, I'm I'm sure you read quite a bit of it as well. What did you uh, think of it? Well, unlike you, I wasn't asked by my boss to summarise a 52-page report. You know, the Labour Party has actually a lot more to be getting with. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but um, I did read it, read it sort of out of interest. Not, not all of the 52 pages, parts of it. It was very interesting. He did repeat himself a lot. He did call the Privileges Committee into question. Um it was interesting because I think he did actually need to go through every single event because the P- Privileges Committee isn't relying on the Sue Gray report whatsoever. And that's something that uh, was made clear during the hearing yesterday. Now, I thought it was really, really interesting. I think it was Johnson entirely in his element, you know, calling everything into question, saying I did nothing wrong, and then saying, even if I did do something wrong, it wasn't that big of a deal anyway. Now. What pissed me off a lot more is that he he was saying, and I made a video on TikTok about this. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. But uh, he was saying that leaving do was essential for the moral purposes. What I think for the morale purposes of running number ten. Now, I think it takes a lot of political dedication to get into number ten, even as a Mm, advisor or a civil servant or something like that so i don't think you need extra motivation especially when there's a a global pandemic going on but the fact that you need a leaving do to and with alcohol and cake and you know cheesy nibbles throwing up all over the carpet were they throwing up all over the carpet yes and one of the events it was so rancid that they were throwing up in the carpet and as sue gray report there was a very very bad culture in number 10 during the time in which you know like Basically, there was disrespect to the estate itself. But the the point that I'm seeking to make is that most people during the pandemic did not have a leaving do when they were saying bye to people around them. Like I left school, I I was in I was in my final year of uh, sixth form, and I didn't say bye to any of my teachers. I didn't see my girlfriend for something like four, five, six months. I think I I can't remember the specific time because it was three years ago now, but. I didn't see any of my friends for ages. I think the next time I saw a lot of my friends was actually in result, on results day in August. So mm. I think no one else had a leaving due. No, we didn't have a prom. We didn't have 
a birthday party. We didn't have anything like that. But Johnson seems to have all of that, and he seems to justify it as he needs it for the morale running number 10. Yeah, I don't think he quite sticks. And it was something that actually um, Charles Walker um, brought up. And I quite like Charles Walker. I think he's quite good on, on the backbenches of holding the government uh, to account. He's... Um, yeah, I, I I have a lot of I have a lot of time for Charles Walker, and he said he said to him, you know, nobody is putting into into question the amount of work that the government spent during the COVID pandemic. You know, working day in day out. I mean, well, some people are calling it into question, but you know, like he's very willing to give time to that side of the argument. But the simple fact is, is that there were parties. You did receive a fixed penalty notice. You did break the law on this. And to, to go out and, deny, one, deny that you did anything wrong, and two, lie about it in Parliament, you know, like, I, t- t- you know, it, it, goes, it goes back to the thing. And the, the big thing that I, I come out of this is he puts a lot of blame on his advisors. A lot of, like, basically, his phone is... is I, I, I don't know how... Um, connected Boris Johnson and Jack Doyle are, or Boris Johnson and Simon Case are. But he puts a lot of blame on them and basically says, you know, I rest on the assurances from them and those assurances were wrong. Boris Johnson politically chose Jack Doyle as an advisor. You know, he has responsibility for Jack Doyle. He has responsibility for the people working in number 10 because he is the boss of it. He's the boss of it. He's not, he's not, he's not the, you know, like the person who sits, who sits behind. No, he is the prime minister for God's sake. You have responsibility. Kartik, I know you want to jump in on this. No, I do. He he also pushed Dominic Cummings under the bus and he has done for a while. So basically saying he has every motive to lie. And the only other person who has every motive to lie when it comes to this is Boris Johnson as well. So I I don't know why why on earth he would actually say that, but he did. Now, what I also find interesting is you're mentioning the advice and the advice and the assurance assurances he was given. Now, in the committee, he mentioned, and I don't think this is quite picked up by the media, or maybe I'm just reading into it very, very wrong. But he basically said that I did not receive an assurance that everything was within the guidance till the 6th of December. And he'd already made a statement in Parliament on the 1st of December in 2022, uh, not in 2020, in 2021 at the time, saying that you know, all guidance was followed. Now, he took the meaning of all guidance was followed and not receiving, like, any adverse advice to mean that all all guidance was followed. I don't know if that quite makes sense. Am I making sense, James? No, no, you are, you are, mate, you are making sense. And also there's, there's something up because I literally, I've just been scrolling through what I actually wrote down for my boss about the submission. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to quote here for, for, from verbatim, Paragraph 100 says this, the following. God, you went down to paragraph 100. I know. (laughs) Informing my honest and reasonable belief, reasonable belief, I also relied on what I had not been told. So effectively, what we have here is Boris Johnson saying, well, nobody told me that there was something going on. So I, I didn't probe it, you know. And for me, again, it goes back. You are the prime minister. You're not even in charge of just number 10. You're in charge of the whole fucking country, for God's sake. You know, if there if there was, a, you know, if there was a terrorist attack down the road 
and you didn't hear it and some and you know you heard lots of different things going on in the background you wouldn't wait until somebody says mate you're gonna need to go because there is something going on down the road you'd you'd ask what's going on what's happening yeah Yeah. i mean (laughs) yeah it's it's slightly baffling but for me, the statements in the house is what I find interesting because when Starmer's Beergate stuff was happening, there were a lot of, you know, people at university and people that I know who are conservatives who are asking me, oh, what do you think about this? You've been very vocal on party gate and stuff, but what do you think about this? And the first thing I did was I went back and checked what was the guidance at the time and what was he exactly doing? I mean, I wasn't in the room with Keir Starmer, um, but <laughs> it's you can see from the pictures what he was doing and what he wasn't doing. And the guidance at the time allowed that. That was my first reaction. And I'm just, I'm just a university student, right? That was my first reaction. Boris Johnson's reaction probably would have been similar to go back and check what was the guidance at the time. So I'm, I'm absolutely 110% sure that when he made that statement on the 1st of December and then and then on the 8th of December, he would have known exactly what the guidance was at that time. And he would have known exactly what he was mm. doing within well, those parts. You, you'd, you'd hope he would, because he was the one fucking making the rules. He was but the one also, making the rules. But also, I mean, the, the committee probed him on this. He said, they said, OK, if you had found out that something had happened, why would you rest on the assurances of political advisors and not aides, and sorry, and not legal um, representatives, official governmental league, because, you know, the government has a legal department, of course they do. And his response to that was, well, you have to remember, Jack Doyle was a lawyer before he was my special advisor. And it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, I can't believe it. I cannot believe that he is using someone who is he's politically involved in this he's using them as an example of oh well their assurance is good because there is a lawyer or they were a lawyer sorry i yeah i mean i think we're just going around in circles of i can't believe Mm. it because i can't believe it either it is mental um but i want to go back to a what he said during the actual um, privileges committee evidence taking session and b uh, the reactions of lord panic and they were indeed panicked. That's not a joke. His name is actually Lord Panic. But okay, fine. What he said during the Committee uh, of Privileges, he basically said, you know, can you assure... The, the committee asked him, can you assure me, irrespective of what we decide, whether we find you guilty, whether we absolve you of any wrongdoing, or whether you whether we say you inadvertently misled Parliament, which would technically be okay, would you still be okay with the structure of this committee, would you still believe in the integrity of the, com- of the committee? And he basically said, no, I'm going to have to wait and see what the actual result is. If you find me guilty, then clearly you're going to be wrong. Uh, but if you don't find me guilty, you know, this was this this committee has all the integrity in the world and they're completely right. So it's, you know, head you win, tells you lose, basically. <laughs> head you win, tells I, yeah, I don't yeah. know how that, that works. The Lord Panic stuff. So Lord Panic is a very, very senior barrister. He acted on behalf of Shamima Begum. He acted on behalf of Gina Miller when she was prosecuting the government. Uh, he's acted on a, he's acted on behalf of the Queen at one point. 
right? And he was sitting behind Boris Johnson during this evidence-taking session. And the expressions on his face as Boris Johnson got angry and started shouting at committee members was just, basically, he was aghast. Like, how on earth is this happening? Um, James, do you remember the, the, the faces that he was making? Yeah, and uh, funnily enough, I didn't actually realise that that was uh, <laughs> that was Lord uh, Panic, and uh, yeah, I mean, well, he certainly did look panic, didn't he? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, to call into the legitimacy of the of the committee itself is 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 absolutely ridiculous uh, because I think the committee, whilst you know, for instance, I will criticise the committee in that I do think they should have taken into account Sue Gray's findings because I do think that they were very potent for, you know, the purpose of the investigation. Um, because that's that's what the fact is. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go too deep down that rabbit hole. Um but I thought that I thought the, the committee did act, you know, very, very, very well. They were, you know, very willing to hear what he said, whilst also being very good at trying to say, you know, don't repeat yourself, actually answer the question. And God knows that uh, Johnson does need to be reminded to answer the bloody question. Um, I thought Alberta Costa, the uh, the Conservative um, MP, was was brilliant in in scrutinising him and actually asking him like how would you have not known, you know, like, and is it, re- you know, actually saying, you know, from our perspective, it is reckless to rest on assurances from political aides rather than actual legal advisors. And yeah, I thought, I thought, I thought they did brilliant. Well. But we'll have to see because, I mean, because this is going to take a while, you know, the committee need to potentially take on some more evidence. Um, and we'll have to wait for their conclusion, which I don't know what the timetable is. Kartik, you want to come in, but do you... I'm no, I just, I just want to come in on one, one final point before we go to break. What I want to say is, basically, for the, for the people listening at home who aren't in the Westminster bubble, political aides are there to advise on the optics of a situation. What is the most politically convenient thing for their boss to do? Legal advisors are there to say what was the actual legal thing for you to do so that's the difference that's why people are saying oh you should you should have spoken to legal advisors not your political aides because political aides are there for the optics political aides are there for your benefit if they're not there if they're no longer there for your benefit mm. they resign so and, yeah. and something that alberto costa did bring up is that actually they managed to obtain a whatsapp message between jack doyle and somebody else the the, the famous jack doyle who's brilliant Jack Doyle basically said to whoever this recipient of the message was, I'm not sure how we can get away with this, basically. So that tells you absolutely everything you need to know. But the committee have got to do a conclusion on this. It's certainly not the end of Partygate. I'm sure people are sick to death of it. I know people I've spoke to, they're absolutely sick to death of it because we should be looking forward, not looking backwards. But unfortunately, we have to look backwards because... Not unfortunately, it's imperative to the integrity of the institutions that, you know, that govern us, that we pay as taxpayers, that they they run in the most, you know, respectful and integrity-driven way as possible. Well, I'm pretty sick of it. So let's go to a break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about what actually there was a vote during the committee hearing. So we'll go to break now. (laughs) 
So we're back from the break. Before the break, I was talking about something that Boris Johnson mentioned during the Privileges Committee, and he basically wanted to make it clear that there is a vote happening at 2.21, which we all need to be dismissed for. So the vote was on the statutory instrument, instrument, which was for the Stormont break, and it passed with a massive margin. I think something like 520-something with 29 people. 29, yeah. Yeah, 29 people rebelling, and 23 of those 29 were Tory MPs and about 43 Tory MPs abstained as well. So there there was a little bit of a backbench Tory rebellion, but, and Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and Priti Patel and all members of the European research group, the hard right of the Conservative Party were rebelling against it. But overall, it has been, in terms of in Parliament, as a first test, been successful for Rishi Sunak. James, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean... I, I don't think there was any doubt that it wasn't going to go through. We'd heard earlier in the week that the um, that uh, the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland, were going to sort of, you know, propose some amendments, veto some things because supposedly it didn't pass their seven checks. Um, I don't think it, there was no doubt that that was going to be a pro- that that it wasn't going to be a problem because Labour supported the 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 deal and so yeah conservatives relying on labor that's a, a well it was labor smp and the lib dems so i find it interesting that the smp was saying that oh you know even now the labor party support brexit when actually the smp ended up voting for the statutory instrument which is an interesting aspect of it. i think smp but, have got bigger things to be focusing on uh at the moment yeah. potentially mm-hmm. um, yeah we will come on to that Hopefully in the third season, we're waiting for a reply to an email desperately. And if you're listening, you know exactly who you are, who, need to, who needs to reply to our mm-hmm. No, I'm joking. <laughs> reply in your own time. You're kind of busy right now. But um, <laughs> yes, in terms of uh, restoring the executive installment, I don't think we are any closer uh, mm. to that. I think the DUP is going to make noises about it till the May local elections. And then after that, we will get somewhere, hopefully, and they'll go, oh, it has actually passed our seven checks. Um, if you don't know what the seven checks are, I'm not going to list them out for you because I don't know them. Uh, well, I know some of them, but I don't know them comprehensively. But you can go and check them out on the BBC website or, do you know what, I'll make a video talking about it if needed. We're also going to do a um, a podcast next week with uh, leading sort of Brexit specialist Anand Men, and we're going to we'll do a big thing on that uh next week so we can have a week to kind of digest everything that's uh that's gone on the revelations and we can do a lot of reflection back on uh brexit which is kartik's favorite subject uh <laughs> but you're gonna have to wait kartik you're getting patient one week to go <laughs> one week to go um but yeah is there anything more we need to talk about on uh on the winter framework developments or i mean certainly i think there could be a lot of political de- sort of issues for the conservative party and it's certainly not helpful for them when you've got your former prime minister you've got your mm. former home secretary no sorry two mm. former prime ministers actually because uh because boris johnson uh, the head of uh, a big faction within the party voting uh voting against it again it was never going to be a problem because labor smp and lib dem were happy with the deal but mm-hmm. it just kind of sows those seeds of doubt within the conservative party which is definitely what they uh don't need right now given how polling and westminster voting intentions currently look shall we move on to the next thing yes let's move on to the next thing why don't you introduce it for us james yes so um 
I, I to be honest, I didn't even know this was going to happen this week. So, uh, you know, kind of came slapped me in the face and came out of nowhere. Um, the Casey report, the, <laughs> the the Casey report came out uh, this week, which was a report into um, supposed institutional um, racism, uh, homophobia, racism, homophobia, transphobia. transphobia sexism within yep. uh, the police force and this is this is culminating after a lot of things i mean sort of with regards to sexism the big thing was you know sarah everard issue that was kind of one of the big landmarks uh for it in terms of racism uh funny enough something not that happened in the uk but george floyd was the was the the sort of the big well no i i, I, th- I think the racism case maybe it's not as high profile as the george floyd case in america but there are, the number of stops and searches that are carried out in the areas that we live in, James, is disproportionately high for BAME people. And that is that needs to be considered within it. But additionally, within the case report, I want to ask about basically if you have known this for a while. Thing is, it's not it's not surprising to me that the case report has outlined that the uh, Metropolitan Police is institutionally racist, homophobic transphobic uh sexist you know that is expected almost from the metropolitan police is well, it's not expected it's not the standard but it's not surprising and it's it's frightening to me that there were loads of people within the metropolitan police that probably knew this probably left the police force as a result of this but was still there weren't any big noises about it until this casey report came out and the question is are people being silenced as well um does this damage public confidence in the police? Absolutely, it does. Uh, and there was another point that I was going to come on to, but I forgot to. Oh, yes. The point that I was going to come on to is basically the Metropolitan Police Commissioner says, whilst I accept the findings of the report, I don't like the term, of the, the use of the term institutionally racist. For Which reference, I- that's Sir Mark Rowley, because it was Dame Cressida Dick, but... um. That's all moved on now. Yes. And, yeah. Sorry to interrupt there. <laughs> no, no, no. They basically said uh, that, you know, w- we don't like the use of the term institutional. I find that shocking because it was actually a report in, into an institution, the in- institution of Metropolitan Police. But of course, there is some political weight to that language. Um, but I think there's, it's political weight that is well attached. That's my yeah, opinion. There, there was one particular story. And for the life of me, I can't remember who... Who, who told this story? I think it might have even been uh, Patsy on uh, our last uh, 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 our last uh, podcast guest. Harry has now got his own podcast. Plug, not to get political. Um, I, I think it was her, but I, I might be completely wrong here and heard it from somewhere else. But basically there was a story of some woman who was working in the Met Police and this, this um, I don't know if it was like a sort of like senior member of staff a you know commissioner or whatever but basically like would constantly say to her you know sit on my lap you know like and all these different things and when she brought it up when she had the courage to bring it up to her supervisor her supervisor said I wouldn't do anything because you don't want to like damage your own reputation it would be too big of a problem so yeah there's there's some really big issues here um and i'm i'm personally i'm very glad that 
the report has come out, but it's important that it's actioned. Um, massively important it's actioned. There was one last thing I was going to ask you, Kartik, about this particular issue, which is um, the fact that for, policing is a big part of political parties' campaigns. I mean, for like... Um, I mean, if we reflect back on Tony Blair, it was the whole tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Yeah. If we look now, you know, the Conservative Party, the 20,000 uh, new police officers, which, I mean, or 50,000, whatever it was, which is, you know, all a load of hash anyway. Um, this has got to be pretty damaging in terms of in terms of the political dimensions, because, you know, it's all well and good saying, well, we need more policing. But if that policing is institutionally racist, sexist, I'm not obviously talking about you know every single uh, police. Uh, no, but of course it reflects officer, badly yeah. on the good police officers. Yes, of course, of course. Does, yeah. um, and so you know, if if the political parties are relying on these institutions for their manifesto. I mean, that's going to be pretty problematic, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. And the thing is, Labour, well, Keir Starmer's come out and said that, look, we need to reintroduce the vetting of police officers. We need to have stricter vetting of police officers before they go into the force. And I think that's absolutely right. But I think it is also a much more institutional issue. And I want to, I want to take us back to 2021, because there was a, a report that is rarely mentioned nowadays. But I want to take us back to the Saul Race report. And that basically mm. said that the United Kingdom is not institutionally racist. Whereas you come, th- you know, two years later or three years later, I don't know how specifically to the month, how long it has been, but you uh, you, you you come down a couple of years later and, and it says that, well, one of the, the largest police force in the United Kingdom is institutionally racist. And but, but was- I think that completely calls into question. And I've always questioned the origins and the content of this all race report, but but in, the short, but in the full race report, I mean, it, it's a bit of a weird, it's a bit of a weird one because in terms of what do you mean when you say the UK is not institutionally racist? Are you being literate, literal, uh, sort of literal in the sense that the UK is a country? Are you talking about, you know, because if you, you could say institutions, you know, like, what do you mean by that? Like, I, think, I, so think, I think they were referencing all institutions within the UK. I think they were referencing the UK government. I think they were referencing the Metropolitan Police. I think they were referencing cultural institutions, where, to be honest, I'm going to discuss this in the introduction to next week's podcast, talking about repatriation of of, of um, stolen artefacts. But Rishi Sunak has uh, very recently refused to uh, return the Elgin marbles to Greece. That's just an example of the imperial nostalgia that's rooted into British society, which this whole race report didn't acknowledge, but this Casey report seems to acknowledge, and I'm glad that at least they've accepted elements of it, but it needs to go much, much further. There actually needs to be real action on it, and political parties need to come up with a strategy as to how they're going to reverse it. And what I fear is that even with the next Labour government, the next report will say, oh, no, we've reversed it because it's politically convenient. Mm. Mm. Of course, of course. It's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a damning case. I would recommend anybody goes uh, to uh, to have a look at it and uh, hopefully we'll see a bit more from um, Sir, Sir Rowley. That that isn't uh, just I wouldn't use the word institutionally. Um but we'll have we'll we'll have to see. Um, so next we were going to talk about, and uh, it was the uh, the TikTok. 
use of TikTok, TikTok ban, because it was quite yeah. interesting because we, we obviously talked about TikTok last week with uh, our guest, Harry, or otherwise known as the Champagne Socialist. And we kind of teased about Tom Tugendhat, the security minister, talking about the use of TikTok. And uh, it's all come at a very interesting time. But basically, uh, yeah, so uh, TikTok is banned from government accounts. Um, but a little bit more Kartik. Isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's banned on, on all parliamentary devices. It's banned on the parliamentary Wi-Fi. So basically, you're not going to see Grand Chaps doing TikTok videos anymore, which is a good oh, thing. Oh no! Oh no! I'm so sad. Good thing. Good thing. But and and the I think it was the chief director of public relations was also in a Senate hearing uh, in the US talking hmm. about you know we haven't censored stuff on TikTok for Chinese citizens. It's all there, but I think it calls into question the whole TikTok thing, and it, and you know, potentially we should start questioning our use of it as well. But I think we'll see how it uh, how it folds out in the future. But it is the first step that the UK has taken. I think it's the first step in the quote unquote Western world uh, of the banning of TikTok. I don't know if the US has taken any steps. I think the US has banned it on government devices, but I think that's a good safety measure anyway. But the funny thing is, is that I mean, like. To be honest, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing for... I think governments have to be transparent, you know. And mm. I think, you know, the thing is that all social media is, you know, privately owned. And so it, it's difficult to kind of say, don't use TikTok and then say, well, should we should we be using Twitter? Should we be using Instagram? Should we be using Facebook? Whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, TikTok is a, is a, is a trend-based social media platform as I I, mm. I I would argue you know it's about people dancing it's about you know uh, I don't think it's content I don't think it's about that anymore though I think TikTok has fundamentally changed the social media landscape completely if you go onto Instagram like okay fine this is a very very niche London-based thing so I really apologize well it, it <laughs> might be a UK-based thing but there was a there's a there's an account called I'm just bait right and I'm just bait is now basically just a news channel. It used to be a meme page, but it's now just a news channel where they repost TikTok videos. So in my opinion, I think TikTok has taken over almost every bit of social media other than Twitter, because Twitter in political circles is completely different. Yeah, but do you know but 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 what what I'm what I'm tr- the, the point I'm trying to raise is I don't wanna see Grant Shapps doing these bloody like edits, doing these like, you know, um like trendy music in the background like why would anybody want to see not that i don't think he's done this why would anybody this is just a hypothetical example why would anybody want to see grant shap sort of like doing something to the tune of capybara like you know oh who wants to see that nobody Karthik didn't ask him to do that uh, nobody wants to see that you know I'd, I'd much rather actually read some government documents than uh than, than do that and i think well not everyone would rather do that james you know not everyone is so deeply involved in the westminster and the conservative party bubble like you i'm not involved in the <laughs> i feel like we need like a post we need a post working in parliament uh review that we publicly say where we just have a go at each other <laughs> maybe but, uh, yes, maybe. but okay yeah. let, let's go on to our final topic before finishing up because it has been a long podcast and we have been talking about a lot of heavy topics but we come on to another heavier topic tax returns so rishi sunak the prime minister published his tax returns yesterday where it came out that he'd paid about 400 400 000, something like that yeah four hundred and thirty-two thousand 
500 pounds of tax, which is approximately 22% of his entire net gain in 2022, which is 2021 slash 2022, which is a pretty low percentage of tax to pay when you're earning over two to three million pounds. So Keir Starmer uh, published his tax returns today. Um, He showed earnings of about £126,000. Yes, he did. And it shows that he paid about £67,000 in total tax. It's quite interesting. Both politicians have declined to comment on the other person's tax returns. I think from the Rishi Sunak angle, it makes him look ridiculously out of touch because look at how much money this man has earned whilst being prime minister. Mm. And Sakir Starmer's is also interesting because it shows that he paid about £23,930 in capital gains tax. Um, by the way, I'm just guessing here on the figures. Well, I'm not guessing here on the figures. I know the figures quite well. But if I get them wrong, I really apologise. But he paid about £23,930 in capital gains tax. And he didn't seem to use his personal allowance. Now, the capital gains was on a share of the capital gains when his sister decided to sell a house he helped her to buy. So maybe it's because he didn't use the personal allowance because the house was in his sister's name. But it makes for interesting reading and we'll update you on it next week. But I think right. from the Rishi Sunak angle, it makes him look ridiculously out of touch. Yeah, but I, I don't think it makes him any more out of touch than I think people already thought he was. I mean... Um, the other the other side of the debate is how happy are the public with someone who is in immensely rich like Rishi Sunak, and I, I'm sure there is a report out there like YouGov or some other polling company that has done some sort of argument as to you know are they happy with him earning as much? Not that it matters because you know if they say they're not happy, that he's earning money. It's capitalism, isn't it? So, uh, mm. um, <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, I. Yeah, I, I I think it's good that he's done it in terms of that it's been long overdue. Yeah, um, but- and I actually I think it's in in the step it's a step in the right direction in terms of transparency of government and mm. officials. And I'm also glad that Keir Starmer has done it because it's teeing up that he might be very well might be the next uh, prime minister and if he's publishing his tax returns as a uh, leader of the opposition then it's a, it's a good yeah. sign but it puts him under pressure to publish it when he's prime minister and i'm sure the tories will be asking for it because i'm sure he'll get a lot more speaking engagements i'm sure he'll get a lot more contacts as prime minister even though he's probably got loads of contacts already what i do want to add is the case time also came under pressure because they were basically saying oh there's there was a there was basically a pension law that George Osborne and David Cameron came up with that basically meant uh, that the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, did not have to pay the pension tax. And the Tories were saying, oh, you know, there's a separate law for Keir Starmer. He set his own pension. It's completely bullshit. It wasn't Keir Starmer who was, as Director of Public Prosecutions, who set his own pension. It was... You know, David Cameron and George Osborne. So, if you have an issue, you need to go talk to them. But Labour has come back and said, we'll reverse it and we're going to uh, put back the tax on over a million pounds of pension savings anyway. So, we'll see. Yeah. I think there's more. But I, a, lot, a lot of people have said there's not any more to come from the tax return story. I personally think, and I might well be wrong, but I personally think there's a lot more to come from it because I didn't think either. Sunak or Starmer have published their tax returns in full and eventually 
a forensic accountant for with political connections will pick up on it. I'm I, I'm not sure I potentially buy into that argument, but we, we'll have to see. Uh, we'll have to see close to the time. I think what I will add is. Uh, there certainly isn't this much chit chat when a bailiff comes to seize uh, your everyday uh, person's <laughs> assets over tax. Uh, not to sound like a, uh, a raving populist at the moment, but uh, yeah, quite interesting uh, reading it makes. Uh, I think this is us done for uh, for today on that cheery taxi note. You sounded more economically uh, <laughs> engaged Competent. than I did, which is, uh, <laughs> which is uh, quite surprising because it's usually me who gets very into the... Um, into the numbers um yeah it's rare for and, a labor uh, member to sound economically competent isn't it yeah pro labor good <laughs> for the economy who knew <laughs> um but yeah but uh but thank you very much for listening uh to today's uh episode um of course, you can catch us on all our social medias on Instagram and the main one being TikTok. You can catch us at Politics on Draft where you can see exclusive clips and snippets of um us reacting to events and uh, video clips from the podcast where you can see Kartik's beautiful face. Uh, <laughs> uh, once again, as always, I have been your host, James Tabor. And I have been your host, Kartik Sawney. And we will see you next week on uh, one of the last episodes of the... Is it the last episode of the it, series? Next week is the last episode, so we can focus on our dissertations. Then we'll be back in the summer, and we're coming up with some exciting stuff for everyone. Very exciting stuff. I can't overstate that enough. So uh, we'll see you for the last episode of season two next week. And uh, yeah, have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.